It's Geeking Out, a Steal This Idea podcast. Welcome once again to the Phoenix Podcast Network Studios. My name's Andrew Burkham, and I'm here to geek out with my friend and partner, Noel Chandler. Say hi to the folks, Noel. Hi, guys. It's Noel here in Modesto with Andrew, having my favorite night of the week, which is the night that we get to record Geeking Out. This is a podcast where we bring a special guest on to talk about details of their life and geek out over stuff that normally wouldn't get said out loud. So I'm uh, always excited to have people here with us. And tonight we have Miss Catherine Fisher. Catherine, say hi to everybody. Hi. Hi. Uh, I have a question, and this is not actually... So your last name has a silent letter in it, except not really. Is it the S or the C that's silent in your name? Uh, I think technically it's the C. Okay. Gotcha. Um I always, I, I don't always, now I spell her name just fine. But when I first was getting to know her, I could never spell her name because there's extra letters in it. Uh, but Miss Catherine <laughs> is here. Uh, she has all kinds of wonderful things that she is what I would say an expert in. Uh, is there anything you consider yourself an expert in, Catherine? Oh, well, considering I'm a graduate student, my professor would probably want me to say that I'm an expert in HIV inhibition. <laughs> Oh, in, you, you inhibit HIV? Uh, yes, we're working on a couple different inhibitory compounds that help prevent HIV that are targeted towards uh, development for third world countries because they are sustainable at high temperatures, high pressure, and are stable long term. This just got really important really right. quickly. I know, really quickly. I'm like, we need to talk about a lot of stuff. Right, right. Like, it's atypical. Like, this pod, okay, given this is the second episode right. of the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Maybe the first, depending. It's atypical uh, of us to go to, like, like inhibiting major diseases oh, yeah. in third world countries mm-hmm. within the first 30 seconds of the podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yet it happened. And so we're going we're gonna to deal with that. Uh, before we even get to HIV inhibitors... Uh, the way I actually met you was you taught ballet for me at Playhouse Merced. Uh, is that... Wait, okay, so describe your dance background for me as well. Uh, so I have been dancing... I, my mom started me in baby ballet when I was three years old. And at five years old, I put my foot down and said, no, no more. <laughs> I don't do ballet. It was too boring. <laughs> but uh, a couple years later, when I was seven, we moved up to the Los Olivos Valley And I fell in love with the local studio because they offered more than just ballet. They offered tap, jazz, a Broadway class, what was Mm. singing and dancing. And so at seven years old, I started training with the Los Olivos Dance Gallery. And I continued with that studio all the way up until I was 19, Mm -hmm. uh, where I then transferred to training at 17, also at Santa Barbara City College. And then when I started college up at UC Davis. I took classes there as well to uh, move into more social dancing, which included uh, most of the Latin dances. So salsa, foxtrot, tango, cha-cha. In Sacramento, I learned the various types of swing, so both East and West Coast swing, and my favorite, which is blues. So, so now we have lots of dance training as well as HIV inhibitors. And then we're going to move into, before we even start anything else, uh, you also ride horses, own yes. horses, deal with horses on a regular basis. Yes. Can you tell me about that? So I have been horse addicted since I was 11 months old. That means different things to some people. <laughs> but. Um, but so when I was 11 months old, my parents took me to a pumpkin patch and there was a pony ride and I have been addicted ever since. And so I finally was able to get my first pony 
later in life when I was about 10. Um, That's not usually a later in life to anybody <laughs> is when I was 10. <laughs> well, I'd wanted one for a lot longer. <laughs> I see. But so I had my first pony. I've been riding since I was about four years old. So over 20 years now, I grew up in the United States Pony Club. So they have a program that emphasizes not only how to ride the horse, but also how to care for the horse and the veterinary and medical knowledge behind horses. So I graduated out of Pony Club when I was 21 with basically the highest knowledge certificate that you can earn, which is equivalent to a pre-veterinary degree. And I also was their second highest level of riding instruction. So I've been doing that for a long time, and I'm now involved as an adult volunteer, where I still go back out and help the kids that are coming up through the program. And they have recently started a horse master's program, so I'm going to start riding again as soon as I get out of graduate school with the United States Pony Club. So I just want to recap, just briefly. HIV inhibitors. Yes. Graduate school. Yes. Mm -hmm much, much dance, including teaching as well as taking instruction. Yes. Uh, Pony club, high pre-veterinary certificate for yes. medical and writing knowledge for, for horses. Yes. Uh, how old are you? 25. I hate you. I hate you <laughs> so <laughs> much. I hate you on so many levels. My problem when I talk to Catherine is generally that I start thinking of us as the same age. And then she's like, no, no, I was born a literal decade before you were. And then I have to just pick her. She's also very, very light. She's a petite person. So I just pick her up, set her outside the door and shut it. Right. Uh, but then she comes. That's why she feels like she has to bring me cake. She also bakes and she'll bring me cake with frosting and hand it to me. And then I let her back in the house. <laughs> Yeah. So that's how that goes. I don't even know where to start, Andrew. Which of these do you feel like is the place to? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I feel like I feel if like it helps. The... I also have a very slightly morbid fascination with toxic plants. So I'm. That's another random uh, hobby. Oh, okay. <laughs> why don't you ex Why don't you expound on that briefly? I this is this is news to me too. Go ahead. Toxic plants. Go ahead. <laughs> so part of learning about horses growing up has had to know, well, what do they eat? But also, do you want what do you want to keep them from eating? Mm. So that was part of my examinations growing up. And I fell in love with this idea of, well, there's all these plants that are out there that actually are toxic. And then I had a professor in college who one of his main mantras was the difference between a medicine and a toxin is dosage. Mm -hmm. And actually, a lot of people don't know this, but one of the leading drugs in the world that people use for cardiac medications comes from a plant called foxglove. It's a flower that grows all over North America. And the toxin in that flower, normally very deadly because it sends you into cardiac arrest. They changed one chemical bond in the structure of that toxin, and it is now in almost every leading drug for heart conditions in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I became fascinated with the idea that all of these plants I was learning about that were toxic to horses could potentially have therapeutic benefits. One example is oleander, which grows along all of the highways here in California. I know this from a movie. <laughs> uh, oleander, highly toxic. Yes. Two leaves will kill a fully grown adult human, <laughs> less for a child. And yet they're using compounds from oleander as cures for cancer at several labs out in Texas. And so I've always been fascinated with this idea that if we can just find the right toxic plants, figure out how they work, so why do they kill people, and then figure out, well, how can we alter that slightly so that it can actually help people? Wow. Yeah. So what's your what's your book going to be about then? Like, what's your, like, so I, I, if you had to encompass that as a 
as as a book. It doesn't have to be a novel. Doesn't have to be a memoir. Doesn't have to be anything. Like, would you, if you could put anything out to the world in terms of a a book that you were selling, what would you put? And it doesn't have to be toxic plants. Doesn't have to be any. Just like you've you've named a bunch of things now that you do that you're good at that you're interested in that fascinate you. So, whatever your book is is what I'm going to geek out on first. Ah, uh, oh goodness, my book. And the title has to be really good. <laughs> No pressure. The title has to be really good. Sell me. Sell me on your book. Why you should make your kids ride horses. Okay. Why do you think? Because to me, horses are a huge reason for how independent I've been able to be from a young age. They are part of what have driven me to become a PhD candidate. Most of my life has been shaped through my interactions with horses and the horse community. And so I feel like there are so many lessons that kids can learn, partially because I want to become an educator as my later in life job, in that kids learn when there are actual consequences at stake. And when mm. you deal with horses, you're dealing with an animal that is easily 10, if not more times your size. Mm -hmm. And you cannot force that animal to do anything you don't want it to do. So you have to learn about teamwork and cooperating and collaboration with an animal that does not speak your language. So you have to learn about communicating with others who cannot necessarily communicate with you verbally. So you have to learn to have understanding for other cultures and ways of thought, as well as gaining physical strength and dexterity and flexibility from having to ride the horse. You actually help your immune system by being exposed to various different allergens and hay and dust and dirt that you'll have a stronger immune system coming out of it. You meet people who come from all walks of life. You deal with the struggle of today was awful. I fell off. I got injured. But you still have to overcome and get back on one day. Maybe not that same day right. because we've learned that can be bad if you have a concussion. You really don't want to get back on. Yeah. But... We, You have to overcome your fears of getting back on and getting back to what you love. And part of riding horses is because you love it. And it has to be for that reason. It's a shame whenever I see people that are simply riding to win the ribbons. Riding is about the joy of it. And there's just so much that children can take away from that, that horses used to be a common everyday occurrence. And now... Most children in the United States have never even seen a horse, let alone been on one. Right. And I feel like there's so much out there that people can learn from having to have that kind of partnership with a live animal. There is something about horses and, and young children. So my daughter, who is four, about to turn five, right? She's never seen a, a live horse, really, other than driving by them on the side mm -hmm. of the road, right? Right. But she has this this fascination with with horses, yeah. and a, a lot of small children have the same thing. Yeah. What do you think it is? What's the What's the connection between us? You know, kind of from the time that we're born, and and these animals specifically. What do you think that is? I think it's partially a combination of horses are a little bit exotic, but still accessible. Right. You know, because a lot of a lot of kids want to interact with animals in general. You know, kids like dogs and cats and they want to touch it because it, it's something soft and fluffy. But horses are that kind of next step beyond of, well, it's an animal and it's soft and I, you know, I want to pet it and touch it. But it's also got a little bit of that mystique to it of that is something special. And especially the way horses move, there's a little bit of an innate sense of grace in the way most horses move. And it's also that they are big powerful animals so there's a little bit of that respect and awe for that's 
big. And this is something I've noticed when I've introduced children to horses is from afar, you know, when they see them out the car window, oh, that's so pretty. And then you get them up close and they have to look up mm-hmm. <laughs> and go, ah, yeah. <laughs> that's horse's head is about as big as I am. Right. Yes. And that's just the head. <laughs> so usually we start by introducing them to Popcorn, who is the miniature horse who we have at the do- barn, who is probably about the same size as most dogs about a labrador size (laughs) and so that they enjoy because he is their size Mm -hmm. and then we just slowly graduate up the ranks from the miniature horse to the small pony and then eventually you get to the beast which (laughs) is one of my friend's horse who uh is actually 17 two hands so for those of you who don't speak horse 17 two hands a hand is four inches so being at 17 two puts the base of the neck so the tallest part of their back at about six, 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 seven. Good lord! And then you have the head another foot and a half above that. Ah! <laughs> so seven foot tall horse or so. Right, right. So I've been out to the ranch where where Catherine rides, and I took my two year old because he liked to say horsey, and I went, "Cool, let's go see horses." And so we all went, and I was that. Yeah, he looked at popcorn. He said horsey, and then we went into the other smaller horsies, and he said, "Yeah." And then we went to the big horsies, and I said horsey, and he went, "No." <laughs> And just had the most terrified clung to me. No, get me out of here. They're so big. And you're absolutely correct. I did not know that the amount of hands was up to the base of the neck. That is terrifying that a horse could be that big. And I saw them and I still didn't quite register that. That's massive. There are bigger horses out there. The tallest recorded horse is 19 one hands. What? Yeah. I can't even deal with that right now. I can't yeah, it seems very large. That. that seems very large, yeah. like far too large to me. Yeah. Uh, so coming at it from another perspective in terms of what Andrew was asking about, what do you think this connection is? Uh, I don't know what the innate connection is, but I will say as a kind of support to what he was saying earlier about the connection innately with young children, uh, that when I when I do music garden, one of the things we do, and this comes directly from you know the founders of the, the company and of the uh, – the actual curriculum and all of the science behind that they one of the things we do is we work on we bounce and the reason why we bounce in a parent's lap is because you are stimulating the spine and you're stimulating the body and you're Mm. kind of getting rhythm into the child's body and it's Mm -hmm. something that Mm -hmm. helps them innately with you know rhythm and math and everything else from, from years from now and the way that we do that the songs we sing are almost entirely horse related you end up talking about riding on a horse you bounce you ride on a horse you do Mm -hmm. horse motions and the anticipation that comes from a big bounce you're about to go into you know he trots 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 and then he stops and we all stop together and they look and they wait for your breath and you keep going you know and that all of those things are all developmentally incredibly Mm -hmm. appropriate and important for a very young child and i could easily see how these songs and folk kind of knowledge developed from having to be on horses at a young age mm-hmm. you know music garden did not invent these songs these are all folk songs that came in, mm-hmm. you know that, that they've derived so it's uh it's that's just a just an interesting component is that yeah. riding a horse actually has from a young age uh, like mental and physical benefits just Definitely. riding not even like you know, uh, dealing with the rest of the the mental stuff that you were talking about. Definitely. And that's actually why they have a lot of therapeutic writing programs Mm. for injury rehabilitation, for disabled people. They've actually shown that 
getting somebody on a horse who's been partially paralyzed can actually help reteach people how to walk because the walking motion of the horse mimics the same hip action as a human walk. Mm. And so they use it for students who maybe have physical disabilities that limit their range of motion to help naturally and gently increase their range of motion in a normal walking fashion. Mm -hmm. They also use it because they think that the motion that incurs in the rest of the spine, and especially up to the cervical vertebrae, actually can help students who have mental disabilities with realigning the spine and promoting blood flow to the nervous system and they've actually shown that students who have anxiety issues because they cannot clearly communicate with other humans because they might have a verbal disability work really well with horses because they're also nonverbal and communicate in similar ways and so can actually be calmed and positively stimulated with horse back riding therapy. Right. Oh. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I love that. So I, I'm sorry to move on to this question. Do horses get HIV? Uh, no. Oh. Horses currently That's good. are not a carrier of HIV. They That's have good. numerous other diseases, but no. HIV is currently limited to humans and primates, mm -hmm. chimpanzees, gorillas, so on and so forth. Actually, chimpanzees and gorillas had it first, and then likely somebody who was hunting them for food accidentally got nicked with a knife that had infected blood on it, and then it was able to transfer to the human immune system and mm. spread from there. Wow. So tell me... Quick, I don't mean to move on from horses. No, no, please, I feel by like all means. We'll, I feel like we'll come back to horses, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I think it's probably going to happen. <laughs> if that's yeah. the title of your autobiography, if that's their, your, autobi your autobiography, then I feel like we're going to move back to that. Well, I would say, considering I've been in love with them since I was 11 months old, it's probably mm. the longest love of my life. Aw, hmm. that's very sweet. So talk to me about uh, HIV inhibitors briefly. Not just what they are, but rather what it is that you're doing with them at the UC Merced. So I work on a specific inhibitor kind of coming from my work that I'm interested in toxic plants. The plant that I got, the protein I work with, isn't toxic, but it's a red algae that's found off the coast of New Zealand. And so another lab, not ours, but another lab discovered that, hey, this protein prevents HIV infection. And part of what we were interested in is like, well, that's neat that it does, but how? Right. We want to know the how. And so it had been discovered that this particular protein is a type of lectin. And what that means is that it binds to sugars. Mm -hmm. And conveniently, the way HIV masks itself from the host immune system is by coating itself in your sugars that you produce in your body. Hmm. And so it says, no, no, see, I have sugars that look like you. You don't need to attack me. And that's the way it prevents your antibodies in your immune system from latching on. Um, which is why it's so hard to kill. Well, the graficin binds to those sugars. And graficin is not a human protein. So the body goes, wait, that's not human. I'm going to bind to that. And so by linking a non-human protein to the HIV, it stimulates the immune response to clear the HIV naturally. Oh, okay. And so we were also looking in, it had been known, okay, it's a lectin, but there are numerous different sugars that the HIV uses to coat itself. And we're asking the question of, are there certain ones that are more important than others? Mm. Because HIV is a very rapidly mutating virus, which is part of the reason why it's been so hard to eradicate and create a vaccine against. And so we wanted to know and be able to predict which strains of this virus would our inhibitor work best against and which ones would it not work so well against? Because you don't want to encourage the virus to mutate any more than it already is. You want right. to see clearance. You want to know okay, well, it won't work against these, so we need to include another inhibitor, which is what we call combinational therapy, mm -hmm. in order to have 
a complete coverage of, well, whatever you might be infected with, one of these drugs will cover it. Right. And so we wanted to know specifically where our protein, which is called graficin, targets on the HIV surface. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. And so that's what I've been doing for the last four years of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Do you feel, I mean, I feel we, as we talk right here, I feel like that work would make me feel very important. Like that would make me feel like I was really solving a very important problem because obviously HIV is a problem that needs a solution, right? Definitely. Do you, do you feel that? Do you feel like I'm working on something that is that is important and that I I can care I'm proud of do you feel like you're doing work you're proud of definitely the answer is yes definitely I'm proud of it sometimes it's it's hard to get lost in like I have been working on the same assay for six weeks (laughs) so it's a little lost in the day-to-day details of how important the work will be long term sure and we do hope there's a separate part of our lab that's working on well how can we deliver this drug right you know it's, it's one thing to make the drug but it's another thing to okay well how is it you have a pill that you take every week and one thing they found is people don't like taking pills every day what they just don't no. i mean i know i don't like taking a pill every day and so we're working on a system that would basically be like um what most people would relate it to is like a nuva ring or a type of birth control that can release slowly over an entire month mm-hmm. but what we use is actually all natural silk from silkworms and so it's natural it's organic it's biodegradable and it also helps so my protein in particular you can beat the hell out of this protein and it'll be just fine Mm -hmm. it is very nice and stable which is part of why we work on it but our system not only works for that protein but it will also stabilize and protect proteins that might be a little bit more finicky they might degrade a little bit easier so that we can have a system that can deliver and stabilize drugs into sub-saharan africa where you're going to reach high temperatures and don't have the options of refrigerated trucks to transport these to various clinics and so we're using these silk patches to try and show that we can release our inhibitors whatever they are whether it's the singular graficin or a combination of drugs over the period of a month or so so it would be something that you could insert and forget about for a month does and it go – it's a patch. Does it go – Well, it's a patch, but it goes up and inside. I HIV understand. is sexually transmitted. So. I see. Okay. That makes sense. And fortunately, for women, it would have to be an inserted patch. Men? Men could probably get away with – if we could figure out how to formulate graficin to put into, say, cookies. You could just <laughs> feed men cookies, two, three cookies a day. You're good because yeah. it's – transmitted through the colorectal tract. Right. Gotcha. Fair enough. Yeah. Yes. The uh, diagrams for that will be in the show notes. Yes. Yeah. We'll tell you all about <laughs> it goes the colorectal tract. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's fascinating, though, that silk is something that you can... Incredible. Yeah. That's really yeah. great. And just by exposing it to water at certain temperatures does something we call water annealing. And how long you have that process occur will determine the pore width between the silk fibroin fibers which will determine how quickly it releases. So we have two separate formulations, one that is a long-term time release that would release over about a month, and we have another one that's an instant dissolve for, I'm going to have unprotected sex in the next two hours, but I want to be protected from HIV. Quick insert, it dissolves, life is good, but you don't have to worry about a patch that's going to be in for a month. Wow. Uh, Yeah, wow. That's insane. I so the thing that I've learned from Catherine 
is, I mean, I've learned a lot of things from Catherine. No, no, just, <laughs> just one. Just, just one. No, I've, if I had to boil it down, it's that, like, I have I have always come away from, you know, I, I, took, I took high school biology. I did this. I was a person. I also took college physics. I almost failed. But we, uh, I don't recall this much effort going into, obviously, because you're a grad student and a PhD candidate, but I don't recall this much effort going into the the trials and the amount of data, like just the pure amount of data that it takes to even be able to boil down a sentence like what you just said. Catherine has notebooks upon notebooks that when we get together and I'm working on my computer, la la la, I'm going to come up with an idea. And she's like, I'm just going to work on my notebook. And it's nothing but data points and nothing but details that are so important and there's so much data that has to be extrapolated down and boiled down into these things it's so uh data heavy and so what i wanted to say was science is hard (laughs) i I agree yes (laughs) science is hard and i i am not i'm not a scientific mind uh and i am gonna say something strange right now but i think i'm not a scientific mind because not because of, but I can link that to the fact that I'm not actually, I'm a good dancer, but I'm not at my core. I'm not a dancer. Every scientist that I know and every dancer that I know have overlapped. Hmm. This is true. Like true dancer, like someone Hmm. who truly understands like how to shift weight, how to move through space, how to involve has always without fail had a scientific mind. And I have always found that super duper fascinating. Now, I am one person and anecdotal evidence means literally zero because science <laughs> is hard. <laughs> but I, I have always known this to be true. Can you even I know it's going to be pure speculation, but can you talk a little bit about what you feel like is your scientific mind and your artistic mind or your dance mind? I mean, I guess it comes back to kind of part of how I was raised. I was raised that knowledge, intrinsic knowledge that you get out of a book is just as important as the knowledge of how you can physically interact with the world. And dance and horses were a big part of how I was growing up in that it was deemed important that not only do you need to work the academics, you need to understand your own physicality and your athleticism Mm -hmm. in order to promote learning on both sides of your brain. Right. And dance for me was that perfect combination because because I am that scientist and I overthink everything. Mm-hmm. When I dance, it isn't just thinking about like, okay, there's music. No, I have to hear every note in the music and I have to think like, oh, wait, that's a French horn. That's a slightly different feeling to that particular part of the music. So I might need to be a little bit more sad in the way I dance for just that instant and then move back out of that. So dancing in and of itself and, and the true expression of human movement there's a lot of anatomy in it. There's physiology in it. There's music interpretation, which requires a lot of math. Music and dance is a science mm-hmm. in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I would 100% agree with that, which is why I'll never be good at it. Yeah. I just never want, say never. I would. <laughs> note that she didn't say, no, yes, you are, Noel, which is fine. I'm fine with that. Don't worry. I wasn't fishing. It's fine. Right. Um, to be fair, I have actually yet to see you dance. Oh, you see me. So I, I had the the pleasure of working on Beauty and the Beast when Catherine was in the chorus. And so I was choreographing. And about halfway through the process, I realized that she was a much, much better dancer than I was. <laughs> and so I'm choreographing and it does take it's a different thing. And so I'm in front and I'm doing things. But so it led there was a difference suddenly one day between me coming in and going, here's what we're going to do. 
transition to me going, here's what we're going to do, right? <laughs> and she's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, good, right? Okay, good. Yeah, okay, we're good. Okay. Uh, and it's just it's just very different when you know that there's someone who has as much training as Catherine has. I have quite a bit of training behind me, but my mind is not. I have far. I have a just. I just have a different mind, and so I uh, I'm always very grateful to have you in that. And the other thing about Catherine that I love is that she has never in her life, as far as I know acted like she knows as much as she does does that make sense yeah like at no point does she step forward and go no no i'm gonna take this over because blank like she knows that she's going to dance and she's gonna do or she's going to step forward and choreograph and she can take the room uh it's a it's a skill that i know i didn't know at 25 Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. that was not a thing that i was able to do i was like i know more than you get out of my way (laughs) uh and i'm very grateful to her for uh i don't know not kicking my butt in that dance rehearsal over and over again to be fair, in our last show, Sister Act, I did a couple times when whoever was teaching the choreography would teach it wrong. I just say, no, nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope, that wasn't right. Nope, do it again. Well, but saying something is different than stepping forward and going, I will fix you. You know, it's always about, fair. It's always about uh, interaction and how you're doing that. Right. True. So when I've dealt with Catherine as a teacher, one Mm -hmm. of the things I love about her as a teacher is the fact that she has such specific language for various things that she does. Uh, I've never had my shoulder blades referred to as tombstones before, but she absolutely did that. And it was a perfect visual. I have never been in in as perfect, you know, lockstep with what I with what my body was doing as when she was helping me visualize what was going on. Uh, And it's because I know that physically you've had some challenges in terms of in terms of when you were being taught in the language that was being used and you had to come up with some different language. Uh, Can I get you to recap some of that just a little bit? Yeah. So one of my challenges learning to be a dancer growing up is I actually had very bad scoliosis Mm. when I was a child that I inherited from my father. If you look at our x-rays, they were identical. Mm. And so for me, a lot of that challenge was my muscles don't necessarily attach the same way and my flexibility is not the same. And for me, especially as a kid, They tell you, sit crisscross applesauce and sit on the floor. I could not do that and keep a straight back. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so for me, the flexibility and the learning how to do these things that you had to be strong but maintain perfect posture and, okay, well, kick your leg up to your nose. Okay. And I could do it, but I ended up using the wrong muscles. And my muscles started to work in different ways that they weren't supposed to. And I ended up with hypercontracted tendons Mm. uh, in my hips that took about nine months of physical therapy to undo. Mm. So I eventually had to learn from other people of, okay, well, this is what it's supposed to feel like, and then interpret that to my own body. So I I learned that I needed to teach based on the feeling that mm. people were experiencing, not based on necessarily on the visual of, I need to see you do this, right. and leave them up to an interpretation of, well, how do I get my body to do that? Mm. Because I knew from personal experience, just getting the result visually was not always doing it correctly for your personal physiology and anatomy. Right. Which I, I I know as an instructor and as someone who was running instructional programs, that is the teacher you want, is someone who has actively thought about how they're going to be pursuing this. They're not just mimicking their teacher before them. Mm-hmm. They are, uh, they have their own voice of what they want to say, and they are going forward with that. I, I thought it was brilliant being, I didn't get the chance as often as I would like 
but Catherine taught an adult ballet class that would often at the end devolve into she was like well what do you want to learn this week and they would we would do salsa or we do musical theater dance or whatever we wanted to you know because that is who Catherine is is like whatever you throw out she'll be like yeah I have music for that let's go and then she would and it would be undoubtedly brilliant and amazing but more than that she would talk you through what it was or my favorite part was when we would say she'd say so what is hurting on you and someone would go, you know, the center of my back, right between my shoulder blades. And she'd go, okay, cool, sit down. Here's what we're going to do. And she would focus stretching and and kind of healing postures based on, on that need. And that hmm. was fascinating as well. And it was so relaxing and so good for your body. Uh, and it was uh, just a truly great educational experience. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, so she, one of the things she talked about was, yeah, in terms of getting your shoulders to be right for ballet, which is a huge, it's a huge issue for dancers. It's like ballet shoulders. And they're like, no, we don't know how to do it. <laughs> and she talked about having two tombstones that slide down, boom, into the, into their pockets right behind your, right behind your shoulders. And I've never forgotten that imagery. And I can, to this day, I can be like, whoof, and I can do it and be like, okay, good. I have like, I'm entirely right in my chest. Now my, you know, my, my stomach is all wrong, but still it's fine. <laughs> you know, fix everything else. Uh, yeah, really wonderful. Did, did, when you thought about that educational component, were you already at a young age when you were coming up with this thinking about being an educator in the future? Yeah, I've known that I've enjoyed teaching since I was about 12 years old. That was when I started teaching because Pony Club is very big on giving back. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you're old enough, as soon as you know how to brush a horse, okay, well, we just got a newbie in. You are going to teach them how to brush. That's another thing that Pony Club teaches is you teaching how to teach, um, which is very important and not even universities don't do a great job of teaching their TAs and instructors how to teach. And yet a horseback riding program teaches. Anyway, right. um, that's an entirely different rant. Mm -hmm. But so that's that's just been part of anything I do is how would I teach this to somebody else in anything I do, not just dancing, anything that I learn. Part of how I learn as an individual is thinking about that. How would I teach it to somebody else? Well, isn't, isn't that what mastery is, is the ability to True. not only know it, but teach it? True. I think that's that's a, a very effective way to come around to, do I have this, do I have this accurate? Am I, do I actually know this? Mm -hmm. Yes, they do say we only retain 10, 20% of what we see in here, but you retain 90% of what you teach. There you go. See? So obviously I have to start teaching math in order to know what on earth is happening. I'm fine with that. I'm going to grab Sean O'Haran from last week, and he's going to teach me how to teach math. And then I'm going to grab, <laughs> well, we're going to talk to Catherine about how to teach, and then Sean's going to teach me how to teach math. Eventually, after this podcast is complete, I'll be a whole person. That's my goal. You're already a whole person. <laughs> what? See, there you go. You're getting that I'm fishing here. Now, see, now you now you understand. I like it. Good. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, Catherine's one of my favorite people, and I love it. Uh, she is also a wonderful light into what grad school is like. So I had a graduate school experience that I will not talk about because the podcast is not about me. Uh, but it was great to have Catherine there to bounce things off of as far as is this normal? Is this not normal? Uh, she is obviously in, in a different field. I was going in for education and she was a, a science, a scientist. But it was interesting just to note kind of the differences in how things are done and 
kind of qualities of education, et cetera. Are you, what do you think so far about your graduate experience at UC Merced? I know you're enjoying yourself a great deal, but I wanted you to kind of pop the program a little bit if you wanted to. I would say the program, it's a little bit different because it is so new. Correct. Um, so there's a lot of growth and development and we get some opportunities that at a more founded university, mm. we wouldn't necessarily have. I would definitely say I've gotten to have a lot more mentorship positions, both in that I have been a mentor to a large number of undergraduate students, but also that I've been able to receive mentorships from postdocs, other professors, my committee that I will be defending hopefully next summer, my Yay. thesis to has been very hands-on of what can we do to help prepare you not only to defend your thesis, but for when you go out into the real world. They are very interested and involved in, okay, well, you want to go on and be a lecturer. I don't necessarily want to do the research that I'm doing now for the rest of my life. I want to go on and teach. So they're, okay, what can we do that will best promote you as a lecturer when you graduate. Mm -hmm. So they have made sure that I'm going to be, hopefully, if I can bump my defense into the summer, one of my last semesters here, not only will I be a teaching assistant, my last semester, they're hoping that they can schedule me to be an actual instructor of my own course. Oh, wow. And Incredible. so that I have that, that I can put on my resume of, I have actually taught a course at a University of California, mm -hmm. which is one of the top ranked universities in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to be able to go and put that of like, yeah, I taught the virology course over the summer, or yeah, I taught upper division biochemistry is a lot more than, yeah, I've been a TA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so having a very hands-on committee has been an amazing experience. You know, obviously there's different personalities that you experience no matter what university you are at. Oh, sure. So I've, you know, dealt with some professors that are a little bit more nitpicky about certain mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. And I've dealt with professors that maybe are a little bit more lax. We have one professor who skateboards onto campus every morning. <laughs> but, you know, so it's nice because it is a diverse culture that promotes learning. And it's, it's kind of funny because... My professor and her husband came from Texas, where they were at a university. And before that, they were actually at the NIH, which is one of the major mm. funding sources for science in the United States. And so for them, UC Merced is a very podunk little town, and you guys don't get any scientific culture, and <laughs> this is so stunted learning. And it's interesting seeing their perspective of, well, yes, no, in other universities, but it's here we have our own unique culture in that there is a lot of collaboration. You don't see that. I mean, I went to my undergrad at UC Davis. You didn't see collaboration between biochemists and regular chemists. Oh, no. Yes. There yeah. were in direct competition. <laughs> Ooh. Like, there were professors that wouldn't talk to each other because <gasps> there were grudges were that there... had been held for 20 years. Oh, wow. Were there mean, mean girl chemists? Oh, yes. Oh, what? <laughs> Very much so. We should make that movie. Usually, That's it was the book, older yeah, white gentleman. Yeah. It was the white gentleman that would butt heads against each other because they were competing for publications. Um, well, good. They can get out of the way while actual people do research. And exactly. <laughs> exactly. Get their lives together. But here at UC Merced, you see collaborations all over campus. Mm. Our lab currently is collaborating with, I think, a total of four or five other labs. Wow. Some of which are at UC Merced, but some of them are at labs across the country. Oh, wow. One of our collaborators is 
collaborators is up at UC Davis. One of our collaborators is out on the East Coast. Oh, nice. And so it's because we are so new, we don't have that stigma of re- we can't reach out for help. No, no. We can't admit that we need help. No, we need plenty of help. We need other insights and ideas because we are so small. But being able to have that okay to reach out actually makes us have a much bigger sphere of people to ask for mentorship. That's wonderful. Yeah, I that's love incredible. That. Yeah. I would love to see uh, somebody. I don't know if other gra- if other graduate programs do this. I guess this is not something I know. A like a booklet that can be added to by other graduate students that can give new students a foundation of what they should actually expect. I know that was hmm. something that in my program I would have loved was walking in and have someone go, okay, this is what they're going to say, but let's be serious. This yeah. is what's going to happen. And not not because there's a lie, but rather because the ins and outs are something that that you learn along the way. And if yep. you are not prepared for that, you're wasting money and time and and everything else. So that would be really nice to see, especially when it comes from a perspective Definitely. of someone who's like, I like to educate. I know how yeah. to educate. Yeah, actually, one of the chapters of my thesis. So one of my other interests is oh, I you pedagogy. About your autobiography. Uh, no. Gah! Uh, thesis um, ah, or okay. dissertation, according to my committee, <laughs> has to be a dissertation. Thesis isn't That's fancy not enough. Grad school, um, yeah. <laughs> um, but so one of my interests is pedagogy, which is learning how to improve teaching techniques to improve student learning. Yeah. Um, but what I was hoping to write, at least for my own lab, not necessarily to be disseminated throughout the entire university. But really is a guidebook of here are the things you need to be doing starting from day one. Here is the timeline Mm. and laid out in a very strict format of this is a checklist of things you should be doing from day one. Here's the things you should be doing starting at the end of your first year, at the end of your second year Hmm. and laying it out of our professor is very busy. So sometimes she doesn't always remind you or hold your hand through your qualification exam is coming up. Okay, well, yeah, it's coming up in a year, but you need a year to prepare for a biochemistry qualification exam. Right. There is so much you have to know. And handholding is not part of their job either. No. Like, that's just not something that they're going to do with that level. No, definitely right. not. And even in any graduate level program, you're not expected to have your hand held. But a lot of grad students don't necessarily understand how much they need to be reading starting from day one of literature. They don't understand the depth to which they need to be reading. And so it's knowing those little things that they were passed on from the grad student before me to myself. Mm -hmm. I pass that on to the grad student who's coming after me. Mm -hmm. And each of us has successively done a little bit better at our qualification exams. The graduate student before me didn't pass and had to retake. I passed, but I had to write an extra paper on the side. The graduate student who came after me, he had a full pass with glowing remarks. Mm -hmm. And so the hope is, is that if I can write this document that – It doesn't necessarily rely on his teaching skill, but it gives everybody who comes after us a little bit better start of Mm -hmm. these were the things that they know that will help get me through. Right. Absolutely. What about a – okay. Obviously, this is insane, but I'm going to geek out for a second. What about a handler? Like, what about a straight-up handler? Like, somebody who comes in, lives with you. You just pay, like, twice the amount. If you pay double tuition, you get a person who stays with you and is like, read that more. Right. Read that more. No, eat this today. No, go to this class. No, don't do that. No, I put that beer down. No, that's not what we're doing right now. You're <laughs> studying. You only have a year till qualifying exams. Get your life together. Uh, and just does that. Because I mean, uh, I'm sorry. Obviously, if you need a handler, you're not ready for grad school. But yeah. at the same time, 
uh, for double tuition, I would do that. Well, uh, yeah, but also... I know several grad students who we joke about, well, we just need to get you a mail order bride because oh, <laughs> the the problem isn't necessarily that they're not reading enough. Usually the problem we run into is you stop eating, sleeping yes. and other basic necessities. Right. That That's that where the handler comes that's in. That's the handler that's, comes in yeah. for you need to go eat. Yeah. You, you need, need to go dorm sleep. Mom. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Dorm moms would be good. Yeah. You see, like a like a someone who lives in the house who's like, your meal is ready. Come here. No, don't. Yeah, put the book down. You pick it back up, but put the book down so you don't die. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. a good idea. I could do that for a living. Yeah. I don't need to do that. I have another job. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something to be said for graduate dorms that have food available and have hours where it's like, okay, you know, aside, if you're not in the lab, if you're here, you should be reading papers. And they do mm-hmm. have that at some universities mm. where they'll have essentially a study hall where it's just everybody gets together and reads scientific papers that they then discuss. And that's a that's a common thing. But here at UCMR said we have something kind of different. You know, we have journal clubs where we come discuss papers once a week. But yes, dorm moms would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. Goodness knows I try and force the graduate student who's coming up after me to eat all the time. I have <laughs> seen him eat three times in oh. the last two years. Oh, okay. So he might be dead for all we know. Yeah, yeah. that seems yeah. like less than the nutritional requirement yeah, for f- a human being. I yep. feel like that's not okay. Yep. Uh, yeah, we need to fix that. Yeah. And one of the times it was because I forced him to eat mm. and I forced him to eat a salad because I'd said, you know, this is good. You need to eat actual vegetables. You can't just keep going and getting fast food. Yeah. (laughs) Vegetables are an important thing for your growth and health. As a biochemist, you should know this. Yes. But he ate it. And apparently it was the first time he had used a fork in over nine months. Uh, What? Because he had simply been eating out at fast food. Yeah. All day, every day. Did he forget? Was he like, I don't understand. Yeah, he was very awkward and could not get more than like two or three pieces of, you know, salad on his fork at a time. (laughs) Oh, and oh. it took him like half an hour to eat a tiny salad because he couldn't get it on his fork. Oh, poor baby. I Why so didn't just go with his hands? I'd be like, and scoop and eat. I'd be like a <laughs> bear with fish getting out of the water. Like, I'm going to eat this. Oh, my goodness. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so we do. We know that grad students need dorm moms. We yes. know that. We know that every child should ride horses yes. like, for their development and for mm-hmm. the good of their brain and their body. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, you don't even have to own your own. There are barns that rent out horses by the hour. Exactly. Look at that. Uh, we also know that uh, you can put HIV inhibitors in silk. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that is beyond rad. I don't even know what to, like, the silk fascinates me. I don't know how to even interact with that as much as, like, could you, my first thought is, like, could I make a coat that's, like, HIV, like, could I, like, HIV bounce off me? Like, don't, like, could I be a superhero that protects other people? Like, can I throw the coat on them if they're about to, I don't. I'm, could that be? Can we make a movie that's that's about HIV inhibitor man? Like, is that no? That's not real. I don't well, know. Well, HIV is a disease that is transmitted through no, you're sexual going interaction real, and blood. And I'm going funny. <laughs> that's the problem. I, I should have known. I should have known better. Yes. No. Absolutely. Of course not. Really. But if someone's like, ah, oh, you know, okay. So PETA and the red paint. That's what we need to do. Uh, PETA yes. and the red paint. Except one day they're going to be like, no, no, it's real. It's one day someone's going to go nuts and it's going to be real blood of some kind. When that happens. Yeah. You need a coat made of silk with an HIV inhibitor in it. Yeah. Yes. Or maybe you don't. I don't know. I just think I'm I'm excited about the prospect. Well, at that point, 
the silk is porous, so the blood's going to go through it. But oh, no. the inhibitor would catch any of the virus that's in there. Right. So you, you'd be coated in blood, but you wouldn't be coated in virus, at least. Yeah, well, that's what's important. You can wash off blood. <laughs> you cannot wash off, you know, when HIV is accidentally, you know, transmitted. Yes. I, uh, Although I would recommend goggles. Well, I don't we all all the time? <laughs> yes. I wear goggles out in the world every day. Yes. Obviously. Rec specs are my jam. Uh, wow. Catherine, this is, there, you are a wealth of knowledge, and I knew that you would be, but I wasn't quite sure. I wasn't quite sure. Honestly, it's the horses that shocked me the most, I think. I knew uh, that you were an amazing scientist. I knew that you were an amazing dancer, and that dance theory was definitely part of your background, I and education theory as well. I did not quite realize how much of the, the horse knowledge was going to be coming out, and that when you said pre-veterinary medicine, or pre-veterinary medicine, right? Is that what you said? Yeah. Uh, wow. That's a that's a lot. How old were you when you got the certificate? Sixteen. Shut up. Wow. Just stop. I yeah, I studied for a year. Sixteen's the youngest you're allowed to take it because it's a two and a half day examination. Oh. It's goodness. a it's a long test. And um, wow. that one that one was actually a little exciting. It was up in uh, Washington State and it was during one of their first massive heat waves in fifty years. It was like hundred and five degrees up in Washington, so they had no clue how to deal with this. Uh, no doubt. And uh, I had a massive migraine because one of the top oh. vertebrae in my neck was slightly out of alignment. So I'd been throwing up all day. Oh. And no. I was attempting part of this exam is it's a practical exam. So we were having to we'd been given this horse and its tack that we had never seen before in our lives. Mm. And we're supposed to clean this horse and tack within an inch of godliness. Right. Like it is supposed to be immaculate. And I'm scrubbing the tack while vomiting in the sink. Oh, no. And I somehow still made it through that examination and passed. Wow. <laughs> oh, honey. Oh, that makes me so sad that someone didn't just go, honey, come back later. Like, no. Um. And, like, well, they almost did. They almost were at the point of, it's too hot. You can't keep down fluids. And amazingly, my mom um, was there with me because I was not old enough to really get to Washington State and rent a car by myself. Right. And so she was there, and luckily she'd been paying a lot of attention when we'd been going to the chiropractor, which I'd been doing since I was very little, because uh, she goes as well. And she actually was able to use a traction technique and crack my neck and put the vertebrae back in alignment so I stopped throwing up. Wow. <gasps> That's terrifying and great. Yeah. No, yeah. It, was, it, was, it was amazing. So. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, ended up ended up passing. Didn't have to go to the hospital due to dehydration. So. Nice. Oh my gosh! But wow. yeah, it was it was intense. Yeah, that's very intense. I'm not sure I would be okay with a 16 year old doing that, like going through that that experience. I mean, the test, yes, but if they start throwing, like, but I'm the kind of person who someone in my house throws up, and I'm like, shut everything down. <laughs> right. No one leaves again. Yep. For a week, I'm just not. I'm not that person. So I. Wow. Apparently, that's a little easier for. Wow. Yeah. Well, I was also a little – my mom, as soon as I started throwing up, was like, you know, we're getting you out of here. Like, you need to go see somebody. I was like, no, I need to do this. I see. So you were fighting her on it. <laughs> yes. So she's yes. like, at your insistence, I will potentially murder you and try and crack your neck real quick. Well, traction works mostly by you have your – whatever's your strongest you finger. You don't get to be a chiropractor too. That's not something you get to do. Or your top finger. And traction mostly is just involved with – gently pulling on the neck to slowly elongate the spine so it's a form of manual stretching that's done by another person all i hear is murder i hear and then <laughs> and then i murdered them. it's that's not like she I tried to pop my head off oh no i'm not saying she did i just hear that i would do that and someone would go oh no that feels something and then they would be dead <laughs> and because you, I, I i just because it would it would happen 
Oh my goodness! Yeah, you don't get to be a chiropractor too. <laughs> no, she 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 did ask like she, and it was funny because there were a couple other people in the room while she did this, and she pulled on my neck and she gently, you know, t- rocked it back aside, and there was just this loud pop, and everybody in the room went <gasps> right, and my, the first thing my mom asked. Can you move your toes? <laughs> and you're like, maybe I'll try. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. That's oh, great. Catherine. That's oh amazing. Goodness. I don't know. See, I am I'm feeling overcome with knowledge. I'm feeling like what I need to do, because what I would love is to be able to braid all of this together. So right. I know you your your one book is coming out, your book about why your kids should ride horses, but <laughs> If you, after that book, once that bestseller is up on the, you know, New York Times, I would love to see a book that braids all of these together. Either it's a book or it's a play or it's even something that's more than that and is like an educational school, a school of education theory. You know what I mean? That blends uh, the physicality as well as the... Uh, what you're doing with your how your brain is working and uh and blends kind of all of that together because it's just such an interesting blend of uh, such an interesting blend of interests like i don't see you do i feel like i see these all the time yes but do i feel like everyone knows they go together no so basically my takeaway from this is can you please encourage you and your friends who do all of this to talk more about all of them all together so it stops feeling like <laughs> like i feel like so many people think they should be separate they think you should like if you like horses then you only like horses and why would you go into the sciences or the same with dance i the amount of people that i've seen talk about dance as if you're a dancer and therefore you don't even need to go to college why would you you're a dancer mm-hmm. it's it's very ups- it's very upsetting all humans are complex blends of interests and abilities mm-hmm. that it's everyone should find the things they like and blend them together and continually look for other new things that they might like. Well, thank you. And thank you out thank there you for, for having me. Oh, no, absolutely. We, we, we loved having you. This has, yeah. been, this has been a lot of fun. An hour has gone by very quickly tonight. So for our listeners, thank you for joining us again this week on Geeking Out. Geeking Out is a production of the Phoenix Podcast Network, an affiliate of the Phoenix Creative Collective. You can connect with the Phoenix Creative Collective by emailing phoenixccmerced at gmail.com. You can find them online on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Phoenix CC Merced. The Phoenix Podcast Network offers a variety of shows, like our scripted interactive audio drama, The Operation, launching in September, and Phoenix Talk Radio, where we talk about news, reviews, and information from the art scene around California's Central Valley and beyond. You can find the Phoenix Podcast Network on Facebook and Twitter at Podcast Phoenix or email phoenixpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. That's all for this week. Thanks again, and we'll see you again next week as we geek out together. <laughs>